Romans uh, chapter 1. Now, we read this morning Romans 12, 1 and 2. And Paul says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God. So he makes his appeal on what he's going to say following that, all based and built on what he said about God's mercy, the mercies of God. And we will never understand the significance of that statement by the mercies of God until we know what's been written in this book. And I'm not going to go through every verse uh, in this book, so so don't worry. But I do want to read verses 1 through 4 in the introduction to this book. Because in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1, we have the significance of the gospel. There's a mandate in verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 4 is the message that Jesus has that, that Jesus has revealed. The Old Testament has unfolded into the New Covenant understanding of it. Jesus is resurrected. He has power over our greatest enemy. And He is reigning as the Son of David and our Lord. Look what Paul says in Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So there is our theme for the book of Romans. The gospel of God and being separated unto the gospel of God. Set apart. And here's the gospel, here's, here's an unfolding of the gospel. Which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the gospel, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, or we could also translate that as I believe it should be, the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. So right off we're introduced to the theme of the book of Romans. It's Jesus Christ, the gospel. In verses 5-16, through 16, Paul then includes his personal notes to the church at Rome as a servant of the gospel. Then in verses 16-18, through 18, uh, which I'll read, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress or hold down the truth in unrighteousness. So there in verses 16 through 18, you have the supremacy of the gospel. You have confidence and not shame in the gospel, Paul Paul says. You have its sufficiency. It is the power to save. John Phillips says, The world does not need a better system of education, more social reform, new ideas and religion. It needs the gospel. The gospel message grips the mind, it stabs the conscience, it warms the heart, it saves the soul, and sanctifies the life. The power of the gospel. But notice the simplicity of the gospel that follows there. It is to what? Everyone that believeth. That believeth. That personally trusts and rest alone in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then you have in verse 17, the summary of the gospel. It reveals God's righteousness. That word righteous, uh, righteousness in verse 17, that's quoted from Habakkuk, uh, occurs 50 times or more in the book of Romans. So righteousness is a key theme. It is what God gives, and it is who God is. It is what God is. 
It is in Himself, righteousness. And it's provided by Christ. It's what is right. It is received by faith and produces a new life of faith. It recreates a heart that God calls just, just as He is just. Declared righteous. Justified. Declared as though the believer has never sinned. And though he has always perfectly obeyed God's law. That's the summary of the Gospel. But it's not good news until you understand verse 18. Because verse 18 reveals God's wrath against sin. The bad news is the backdrop of the good news. The black is the, is the backdrop against the glowing white hot good news of the gospel. Jesus warned more about the severity of hell in the gospels. Two times as much as he did the joys of heaven. And the wonders of heaven. In fact, in the book of Matthew alone, for every verse Jesus refers to heaven, there are three verses where Jesus refers to hell. And Paul wants us to understand in verse 18 that the wrath of God is a bent bow pointing the arrow of His white hot holiness at the soul of anyone and anything that is unlike His moral character, His holiness. That ungodliness in verse 18. That unrighteousness. That willful disbelief who wants to push away the truth of God is under God's wrath. So here in these first 18 verses, we really have the introduction to the book. In the rest of chapter 1, the unbeliever is then shown to willingly and, uh, and, and, and very clearly be guilty before God. Chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, 8 show the powerlessness, the hypocrisy, and the guilt of those who think they are righteous through their own righteousness instead of accepting the guilt for their condition. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, those who, uh, who run away from God uh, uh, by their debauchery and those who run away from God by thinking they can be good enough to not need Him, all both running away from God. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, Paul says that they're all separated from God. And under the just sentence of eternal punishment and without hope, unless Jesus Christ the righteous steps in. So verse 21 through 31 is the good news. That the rescue is free. Because the judge took the punishment in our place. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, tell us that this, uh, this righteousness is by faith. It is not something that we can uh, contribute to. And chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, assures us that we all, what we all share with Adam as being uh, 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 condemned and under God's wrath because of sin is no match for the deliverance that Christ accomplished for those who believe, according to verse 1. Therefore, on the basis of Christ's work on the cross, for those who believe, Paul unpacks the new heart of the believer in Romans chapter 6-8. through He unpacks the new heart the believer has been given and the spirit who energizes it. There's deliverance from death in chapter 6, 1 through 11, because our old man died with Christ on the cross. There is deliverance from sin in verses 12 through 23, because sin is defeated and executed at the cross with Christ, freeing us to a new master in eternal life. There is deliverance from the demands of God's law in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, which is pretty much the key chapter of the entire Bible, in my opinion. Paul delivers very potently 
anchor truths that paint a picture of the power of the Spirit to place us under a new law, the law of Christ, in verses 1-4. through Because there is no more condemnation for sin in Christ, and no more control by sin in Christ. There's a new Lord and Master in verses 5-13, through because the Holy Spirit now is the master of the mind. He's the master of our motives, our motivations. And there is a new life of hope in verses 14-39. through because the believer experiences sonship as they are adopted into God's family and have the security that the soul is longing for. The believer is predestined for glory and therefore is preserved for glory in this life. The enemy is defeated because the sons of God are defended. And no enemy can overthrow his warm embrace and power at the end of chapter 8. Then in chapter 9 through 11, the tone of the book changes a little bit. And Paul describes his anguish for his people Israel. His desire for them to see this amazing mercy of God personally in their lives. He rehearses how God has dealt with Israel in their history and his sovereign choice based solely on his mercy and nothing else. Any blessing Israel experiences is only because of God's merciful sovereign election, Paul explains in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 9. Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Then Paul makes the argument that God is the potter, man is the clay. Who can question his work? God does whatsoever he pleases. And the mercy he shows the Gentiles in the Gospels, in the Gospels, shouldn't be assumed on, but should bring the Gentiles to their knees in humble gratitude for his mercy. The Gospels, only by his mercy, it cannot be earned. So Paul will say in verse 31 through 33 of chapter 9. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. It's God's mercy through faith. Then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul rejoices in the righteousness secured by Christ and his obedience to the law. You see, chapter 9, 31 through 33, Paul tells us that they sought the law of righteousness by their own works. But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone that believeth. He finished it. He completed it. He kept the law of God perfectly. And any attempt by man to earn righteousness is simply blasphemy. It's secured by Christ and His obedience to the law, His active obedience. In verses 5 through 15, then of chapter 10, he tells why Christ alone can be confessed as Savior. And the answer is because He alone has finished the work and He alone is Lord. Then in verses 16 through 21, he shows the depravity of Israel as a nation and having so much offered to them, but in rejecting the slain and resurrected Lord right in front of their faces for their salvation. So then we get to chapter 11. 
And Paul exposes, again, God's mercy. He lays it bare for us. That though Israel as a whole has rejected the Messiah, the Messiah has not rejected Israel in His mercy and grace. Exhibit A, Paul. And verse 1. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I'm exhibit A here that God has not cast away Israel. Then there's the nation's history in verses 2 through 10 as exhibit B. There is always a remnant of Israel only because of God's graciousness, verse 5 and 6. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no more of works, otherwise grace be no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Only because of God's grace, there is a remnant. The blinded majority, though, of Israel are reaping the hardening of their hearts against the prophets' warnings through the ages in the Old Testament. But again, God's mercy. Though He's dealing with Israel disapprovingly with their blindness, He is using their blindness to bring the gospel to the pagans, the Gentiles, the heathen. The only reason Paul tells his readers that the gospel is offered fully to the Gentiles is because of Israel's national rejection of it. God gives to the Gentiles what Israel despised, Jesus Messiah, to provoke the Jews to jealousy and to turn them back to the son of David, Christ, verse 11 and 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, the Gentile, or to provoke Israel through the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them, the fall of Israel, be the riches of the world, because now the gospel is offered to Gentiles as well, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, how much more is their salvation that Paul sees in a future sense here of Israel. How much more will it deliver the fullness to the Gentiles? And though he's dis- dealing disapprovingly with Israel, he will use the opening of the gospel to the Gentiles to restore Israel in the future. In verses 23 through 29, it's my interpretation. Then in verses 30 through 36, because of all that Paul had written about the glory of God's mercy and the good news of Jesus, to live righteously in both the Jew and Gentile place, and take the full force of the wrath of God on our failure to love God perfectly and to love man perfectly, and, and, and our contribution to violating His purpose for us and His holiness, then chapter 11 at the end that we read this morning breaks out to worship and marvel and awe and amazement at the wisdom of the gospel in Christ. And four times, Paul gets on his knees and he points to God's mercy. First to the Gentiles in verse 30. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their belief. Then a couple times in verse 31, to the Jews, then to the world altogether in verse 32. In verse 33 through 36, Paul in his praise says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? 
Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. His goal will be reached. His purpose will stand. He will not be stopped. His mercy guarantees the success of this powerful gospel for everyone who rests in it. And on the basis of God's mercy and judgment, by completing the work of salvation to form the new humanity, His church, Paul will say, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. So I want to talk to you this morning on Romans 12, 1 and 2 about here's what pondering the mercy of God in the gospel needs to do for you right now while you're sitting here. I want you to understand this key truth. Very simple. I am saved, but I am not done. I am saved, but I am not done. We cannot be satisfied with keeping to ourselves. That's the point of Romans 12. I am saved, but I am not done. First of all, I want us to understand in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, there's a fuel, there's motivation, there's power for a command. There's a process to make that command become reality. And there's a goal in that command in these two verses. I want you to understand, first of all, the combustion, the combustion, the fuel for gospel-fueled service. And it is, as I mentioned, the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Notice that Paul's appeal in verse 1 is built on an appeal, an exhortation to the mercies of God. I beseech, it's translated in other, other ways, I urge, I exhort, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. On the basis of this, therefore, by the mercy of God. And as we've gone through a very short um, understanding of what has led up to Romans 12, 1 and 2 in the book of Romans, you need to understand that you have to grasp a sense of God's mercy to your vileness. How He reached down, and He didn't just chuck a life raft out there to float out to you, for you to climb on by your own effort. But He grabbed you out of the dark, raging sea of your sin and despair, and He rescued you. How He stepped in front of the rushing train on the tracks of God's wrath, and threw you out of the way onto the cushion of His love. You need to understand His mercy to you, Romans 1-11. through Understand His mercy to you. It is, it is on that appeal that is the fuel, that is the combustion for our service in Romans 12, 1 and 2. The second thing I want you to see is the obvious command. The command. He says, uh, 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 I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. That is, that is the exhortation, the, the expectation here, the command. We can know everything about chapters 1 through 11 up here. And if we are not surrendered to Christ as Lord, then we are simply trampling the body and blood of Christ and missing the point of all that Christ accomplished in chapters 1 through 11 in the gospel for us. 
If we want feet on the ground to live changed lives and experience the, the joyous truths of the following uh, verses here in this chapter of, of the church body life, then we must begin with a circle around me, myself, and have surrendered individual bodies that are resurrected sacrifices. You see, if I don't present, notice he says, present your bodies. If I don't present my taste, my touch, my smell, my hearing and feeling to God to do as he pleases, I'm ruled by my flesh. And I've forgotten that I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer me that's the lie, but it's Christ in me. If I do not present my emotions, my happiness, my anger, my fear, my disgust, my trust, my dreams, my surprise, my emotions to God as a living sacrifice to do with as He pleases, I am not a living sacrifice. If I don't present the intellect of my mind and knowledge to God to rule, I am not a living sacrifice. Paul says, I want you to present your bodies on the altar but you're not a dead sacrifice who just lays there. The old Jew's dead. But you're a living sacrifice who has Christ in you, the hope of glory, animating and giving life in Christ. You see, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is the work of the Holy Spirit being unleashed in your life. And in order for this to be true, by God's grace, you must hand over your life in all its forms and impulses to live with Christ in you and express the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is spirituality. Spirituality has that a root word spirit in it. Because there's no spirituality without the spirit. The rule of the spirit in my life. To put your life on the altar, all of it, or as Jesus describes it, to take up your cross and die and follow Him by by denying yourself. You have by faith put the power of everything Jesus accomplished and provided in the hands of the Spirit to form you into a resurrected sacrifice that's set apart from God. begins with surrender. I present my body. But it's not simply a passive thing. A sacrifice that is set apart from God, it is radiantly holy. A holy sacrifice. It, is, uh, it has the character of Christ ablaze in it. It is unblemished, holy sacrifice. Practically repentance and faith. But when there are the blemishes, we go to the cross and we remind ourselves, Jesus finished this. He died for this. It is done. Cast our sin on the cross. Claim the righteousness of Christ that has been delivered to us. Purity of Jesus' work on your behalf. And another way to say that I present my body a living sacrifice is I'm saying to God that all of who Christ is is in me. And I will by faith in His graciousness live the power of the life of Christ in me. Brothers and sisters, this is the command of the resurrected sacrifice for body life that must be true of you personally. But I also want to talk to you about the course, or the process, 
the process of this resurrected sacrifice. And that's the expectation. A, 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 a body that is a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your, 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 your service as worship, offer of worship to God. I want to talk to you about the process of the resurrected sacrifice. First, notice what he says in verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Okay, there's a put off, and then there's a put on in here. There's a put off. There is the, the recognition of the stench of death in this, in this world. That word world uh, can be translated age. And it has to do with the, with the system of thinking and operating in this life as life without God, not eating God. If I understand that the appeals of the world, as good, as good as they might look, are rampant with toxins that lead to death, I will be. I will not be pressed into their mold. Think about it like this: If you're offered a sizzling hamburger, which might sound good at 11:45 right now, and that thing—I mean, the cheese is melted on it, and uh, it's got everything you want on your hamburger. <clears throat> And it's there on the plate in front of you. But then you find out that that good-looking hamburger is contaminated with E. coli. You're not going to let it become a part of you unless you're a fool. That's how you need to understand the world system of thinking. Life without God. It has so much of an appeal. It looks like a sizzling hamburger. But it is contaminated. There is a constant pressure on us, according to this text, conform to, to form to the world's thinking. By default, it, would ha- it will happen to you unless you cast it off. Do not be conformed to it, Paul says. You're crucified unto the world, and the world is crucified unto you. If you're alive in Christ, don't let the world set the model for you. Men, don't let the world's definition of manhood set the, set the uh, model for you. Ladies... Don't let the world's definition of what a woman is set the mold for you. Let the life of Christ in you be the model for the world rather than the other way around. There's the put-off aspect. But then there's also the putting on. Because he says, But be ye transformed, metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. The process, uh, the, the, uh, um, the course of presenting your body living sacrifice is not only the putting off, but it is the putting on, the, the continual process of renewing your mind. Understand here, this is not a one-time thing. This is not a daily thing. This is a moment-by-moment thing. I must continually be renewed in my mind. When temptation comes to be conformed to the world system of thinking, I must fight the fight of faith by remembering God's Word, renewing my mind. What His Word says. Unleashing the Spirit's work in my life as I allow the Word of Christ. Paul spoke on here a couple weeks ago, uh, filled in for me, uh, from uh, Colossians. The Word of Christ, the Gospel, to dwell in you richly. To take a full residence. To etch the likeness of Jesus on your life as you obey His Word. And if you surrender to obey the Word by faith, you will be transformed to be a resurrected, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. In fact, Paul will say in 
2 Corinthians 3.18, as we gaze into the Word of God as a mirror, and we see the glory of Christ, we're transformed, we're metamorphosized, we're changed into that same image from degree to degree, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Renew your mind in His Word. Meditate on His Word. On Wednesday nights, we're going through a a five-part series, Meeting with God, and we've looked at... um, uh, the importance of the Word of God in our lives and, and, and the renewing effect it has. And we're going to be talking um, uh, this Wednesday on, on the, uh, the meditation of God's Word. And we're going to get into, into prayer here. That's renewing our minds, moment by moment, depending on His power. But I want you to also finally notice the conclusion. The conclusion, the goal of all of this, the end. Notice what He says. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That you will prove that God's will is acceptable and perfect and good. God's will. What's God's will? God's will is what He's revealed in the New Testament. It is life for your soul. And God's will is good. God has your best interest in mind according to Romans 8.28, and His glory. His will is good. And a resurrected sacrifice proves to those around Him in the watching world and in their own life experience that God's Word, His will for your life, as unfolded here in the New Covenant, is wise and it is good. Notice what else He says, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable. God's will is acceptable. It might seem unreasonable to us. Paul says uh, in verse 1, it's your reasonable service. Uh, There's a couple ways that can be translated that uh, scholars are divided on. Reasonable could mean it is the most obvious intellectual thing to do. It also could be translated with the idea of it's your spiritual service or spiritual worship. Um, uh, Both of them, though, do lend themselves to 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 the same thought that Uh, God has saved us because He's not done with us and we are to serve Him. We're to serve Him. His will is acceptable. The demand of Scripture might seem unreasonable to us, but that's only because we've conformed to the world. But when we surrender and cast off the world's self-centered thinking, that everything revolves around me, and renew our minds with the mind of Christ, we'll prove that His demands are acceptable and provided for. He's given all provision for it. It's acceptable. But notice Paul also says, the perfect will of God. It's perfect. We can't improve upon His will for our lives in the Bible. It's complete. His will is full and complete. Everything we have in the New Testament here, and how the Old Testament uh, and New Testament explains the Old Testament, is exactly what will bring us to eternity with Him. There is no option of plan B. It's all of Christ and all of us. God is not done with you if you're His child. He doesn't save you and then say, finished. Yes, His work is finished for establishing His righteousness in us and the means of provision to be uh, His children who are conformed to His image. But He's not done. Because the way He etches the marks of His Son in your life is in the following verses. Verse 3 through 21 specifically, as we'll be looking at. 
And it's through our relationships with the local church body that His life is most visible. And how we prove by presenting our bodies as a resurrected sacrifice that His will is indeed good, acceptable, and perfect. I said to begin with this morning before we looked into this text that I am saved but I am not done needs to be echoing in your chambers of your mind this morning. Because Paul wants us to understand we can't be satisfied with keeping what God's done in our hearts to ourselves. I'm saved, but I'm not done. God has much work to do in me and through me as we serve others. And so as we look at the next few verses uh, here in the, in, the, in the coming weeks, I want us to understand the foundation of it all. It's an appeal on God's mercy in your life. That He has made you an acceptable, resurrected sacrifice. And you are to do your part in sanctification. And unleashing the Spirit's work in your life for that to continue. Let's pray.